Welcome to Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces. I'm your host, Cassiopeia. You can find new episodes every Friday on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to follow along on Instagram and Facebook for all future updates at creepycases.spookyspaces. Due to the nature of this show, some of the details can get pretty graphic, so listener discretion is advised. start my episode today, I want to speak about something that I hold in very, not high regard, that's not the word I'm looking for, but high importance. And I feel that we don't talk about it enough. And today, on the day that I'm recording this episode, I actually found out that I lost a dear friend to his battle with depression. And... Um, I just, as someone who battles with depression myself, I just want to say that if there are any of you out there who are also fighting the good fight, please reach out. If you ever feel like you can go no further, please reach out and talk to someone, whether it be someone you trust, whether it be a hotline where it's completely confidential and anonymous and a stranger, um please reach out. There's no reason for you to feel like there's just no hope at all. Um, So I actually want to take the time to dedicate this episode to Carl. Our creepy case this week is one of cold-blooded murder and it still sits cold 109 years later. A slew of murders, eight in total, including six children between the ages of five and 12, so brutal that it forever changed the small town of Villisca, Iowa. For some, it was almost too much to handle. The town actually divided itself Friends and families turning on one another. People began carrying weapons everywhere they went. And even careers were ruined by the rumors, the speculations, and in some cases, flat-out lies. Nearly 10 years were spent investigating this one case. Many hearings with a grand jury. Slander, murder trial, and we're still left with no answers. Even today, people still pore over the case details, trying to find any clue or any information that could have possibly been missed that could solve the case. This week's case is of the Basilica or the Velisca Axe Murderers. Located in Montgomery, 
County, Iowa, Villisca in the early 1900s was a close-knit, thriving town. A grand spot to grow, a successful business, a rather quiet town funded entirely by its residents. While the murder took place in 1912, the lingering effects still haunt the town to this day. On June 9th, Lena and Ina Stillinger attended church, and while they were supposed to be visiting with their grandmother later that day and stay the night, after the Children's Day service that they performed in, all that changed when Catherine Moore invited them to spend the night with her family. And the Children's Day service was the end of the year Sunday school event, and Sarah Moore was co-director with her children and other members giving speeches and um, recitations. Uh, Josiah Moore called the Stillinger household to ask permission for Lena and Ina to spend the night. And while their parents were out, their older sister gave the green light and said that she would pass the message along that the girls would be over at their house. Now, no one expected this would be the last time the Moors and the two young Stillinger girls would be seen alive. Around 9.30, the group made their way back to the Moors' home. They indulged themselves in some cookies and milk and then retired for the evening. Sometime after midnight, someone took Josiah Moore's axe, snuck through the house, and bludgeoned all eight sleeping members. Now, according to a crime scene reconstruction done by the town coroner, which we don't know if these are the actual movements of the murderer or murderers, Um, but this is kind of the idea of what happened. The killer had taken an oil lamp from a dresser, removed the chimney, which is the little, um, like the glass piece that goes over to protect the flame, and placed that piece out of the way under a chair. They bent the wick in two to minimize the flame, lit the lamp, and turned it down so low that it only cast the faintest glimmer in the sleeping household. The killer then made their way up the stairs to the bedroom of Josiah and Sarah Moore. Raising the axe so high above their head that it actually gouged the ceiling He brought the flat end down onto the back of Josiah's head, crushing his skull and most likely instantly killing him. He then went around the side of the bed and did the same to Sarah. The killer then made their way through the home, killing the more children, 11-year-old Herman, 10-year-old Catherine, 7-year-old Boyd, and 5-year-old Paul. Now. In my research, there's nothing to say that any of the children or the adults before being murdered um, awoke, and I really hope that they didn't, but when the killer made his way downstairs to where the two visiting girls, Lena and Ina, slept, it is believed that Lena may have awoken just before she was murdered 
as her arm displayed a defensive wound and she was actually lying um, lengthwise across the bed, not long ways how people normally sleep, but she was laying across it. Now, for reasons unknown, um, reasons we'll most likely never know, the killer made their way back upstairs and bludgeoned all of the Moors' skulls to bloody pulps. Josiah was actually struck roughly 30 times, and all of their faces were unrecognizable. Now, the killer actually spent some time inside the home after the murders. He had to search for and ended up covering all of the bodies with sheets, then went downstairs and did the same for the two girls who were visiting. And he went around and hung cloths over every mirror and piece of glass in the home. And most likely due to the belief that if a mirror um, is uncovered in a room where someone dies, their spirit can get trapped in it or mirrors are considered portals so they could move through the mirrors is the belief. The murderer also took time to wash his bloody hands in a bowl of water and there was actually a plate of food that was found. The murderer also removed a two-pound slab of bacon wrapped it in a towel and left it on the floor of the downstairs bedroom next to a piece of keychain that was later reported not belonging to the Moore family. While it also hasn't been confirmed, there is speculation that the killer used the bacon to satisfy his sexual needs before he put the lamp back at the top of the steps, took the keys, locked the door, and vanished. Now, during the investigation, they found two cigarette butts in the attic, so they actually think that the murderer snuck in and waited for the family to go to sleep before making their way down and murdering the family. Our creepy case continues after a word from our sponsor. Around 5 a.m. the next morning, Mary Peckham went out to hang laundry. And by 7 a.m., she noticed that not only had no one entered or left the Moore home, the chores hadn't been started either, and the usually lively home was completely silent, and the curtains were still drawn. Around 7.30 or so, Mary became concerned. She actually walked over to the house and knocked on the door. So when she received no answer, she tried to open, only to find that the door was locked from the inside. So she let out the chickens and called Josiah's brother Ross, 
setting into motion one of the most mismanaged murder investigations. Josiah's brother arrived at the home around 8 o'clock, and after he too received no answer upon knocking, he let himself with his he let himself in with his spare key. Now during his inspection of the house, he found two bodies covered in a bedsheet in the back bedroom, along with blood on the bed. It was then that he called Joe's hardware store, telling Ed Selly to get the marshal, Henry Horton, and that something terrible had happened. Hank arrived around 8.30, went through the home, and found, quote, somebody murdered in every bed. The axe, which had been partially cleaned, was actually left leaning against the wall of the downstairs bedroom where the two young Stillinger girls were found. Horton had brought along with him Dr. J. Clark Cooper and Dr. Edgar Huff, and he brought the minister, Wesley Ewing. They were trailed by the county coroner, L.A. Lindquist, and another doctor who was actually the first to examine the bodies and estimate the time of death, F.S. Williams, who, upon exiting the home, clearly shaken, stated, Don't go in there, boys. You'll regret it until the last day of your life. Most of the growing crowd outside ignored his warning, and as many as 100 curious bystanders spread throughout the home, tainting the crime scene, touching items in the house, and one even removed fragments of Josiah's skull. Now, I'm obsessed with some pretty creepy and spooky stuff, but I do not need a fragment of somebody's skull who was murdered not even 24 hours prior. The murders shocked the town of Villisca, especially because no one understood how anyone could murder the Moore family or the two young Stillinger girls. Josiah B. Moore was a successful businessman. He succeeded at everything he did, and during his early 30s, he earned a large amount of wealth and went on to marry Sarah, and they had four children. The family was very well-known and very well-liked, and they were considered to be generous and kind. A church-going family who held good and strong relationships with many among their community. Thinking it could have been a transient, they spread out and searched the surrounding area, but no one was found. If he was local, it would have been pretty easy for the murderer to get back home without any suspicion. But also, the town of Villisca had up to 30 trains that passed through each day, making whether a local or a passerby a quick getaway pretty easy. The only thing residents could do at that time was gossip, share theories, and turn on one another in suspicion. Our creepy case continues after a word from our sponsor. Shh, do you smell that? 
The fairies must be whipping up something new over at the Wiccan Fae Candle Nook. The new layered candles are a must-have for any candle lover. You can choose from three scents to create your very own garden soiree or Sunday yummy Sunday. And the options don't stop there. With a wide variety of scent profiles and fun names like Bitch Slap Blue and Chill the Fuck Out, you're bound to find something for everyone. Right now, if you mention the discount code CREEPYSPOOKY at checkout, you can get 10% off your first order. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to pizzaandpigtails.com, click the link in the left-hand corner, and get your hands on your very own Wiccan Fae candle. Hey, Central Florida dessert lovers, both local and visiting. Are you in need of a cake or a variety of goodies for an upcoming birthday, anniversary, or just because you're an adult and don't need a reason to treat yourself every now and then? The team over at Storybook Delights is ready to accommodate all of your sweet treats needs. Ashley, Stephen, and their little man Lucas, who, by the way, is actually a super fan of creepy cases and spooky spaces, are ready to go with a wide variety of treats, from cakes to cupcakes to cookies to cake pops, and so much more. I'm sure you can tell how excited I am just talking about it. The best part is that all the items are 100% custom made, meaning you choose the item, you choose the theme, you choose basically everything, Or you can tell Ashley to take creative control and let her create a masterpiece. And right now, if you mention the podcast, Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces, you'll receive a half dozen order of cake pops added on for free. And with delivery to Disney resorts, Universal resorts, and to your own front tour, there's just, it just makes sense definitely, definitely reach out and put an order in. And as someone who has tried quite a few of her creations, I have to say they are delicious and I definitely recommend them. So head on over to Facebook or Instagram, search Storybook Delights and get those orders in today. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. looked at suspect was Moore's former employer, another local businessman, and state senator Frank Jones. He was never officially charged, but he did undergo an investigation by a grand jury, and his political career was destroyed. Many were convinced that he used his influence to have the case against him dropped, which, Bob, it's a possibility. Now, the reasons that Frank Jones is a suspect um, is are pretty strong. Joe Moore actually worked for him for seven years and made him quite a large sum of money as his star salesman. But Moore left his job with the farm equipment business in 1907 
very unhappy with Jones's required hours of 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. six days a week. He set himself up with his own sales company and took the large John Deere account with him. Another reason, and this is also just speculation and rumor, but it was believed that Josiah had had an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, a well-known local beautiful woman who had a number of affairs with men in the community, and she actually wasn't shy about the way she set them up. She would actually call and set up her meetings over the phone. Don't forget, this is a time where all phone calls had to be connected through an operator. By 1912, Moore and Jones avoided each other at all costs. Now, due to Jones's age, he was actually 57 at the time, some felt he wouldn't have been able to murder the entire family on his own. But, of course, this doesn't mean that he couldn't have paid someone to do it. In 1916, one detective, James Wilkerson, claimed that Jones hired William Mansfield, who actually ended up murdering his entire family in 1914, and he was linked to other axe murders and even a suspect in the New Orleans Axeman case. And if you remember, I actually did that one um, a couple months ago. So if you go back and read, you can actually hear a little bit more about um, William Mansfield in there. Um, but payroll records prove his alibi of being at work over 100 miles away the evening of the murders. Another suspect who was high on the list was Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, an English immigrant and a preacher who was known for sexual deviance and had high, high mental health issues. He had arrived in the town the morning of the murders. He actually attended the celebration at the Moore's Church, the one that Sarah Moore co-directed and her children and the Stellinger girls performed in. He then left by train early Monday morning. In fact, he was on a train at 5.19 a.m. telling others about eight dead in Villisca. He even stated they had been, quote, butchered in their beds while they slept. Now, this was three hours prior to the bodies being discovered. Now, they say that Lynn was only 5'2 and 119 pounds, so a lot of people didn't think he was capable. But he was left-handed, and Coroner Lindquist actually stated that the blood spatter from the axe matched someone who would be left-handed. He returned to Villisca two weeks later, posed as a detective, and joined in on a tour of the home with other police inspectors. And that's suspicious all on its own. Investigators actually had their suspicions of Kelly when word of his past had surfaced. He had suffered a major mental breakdown as an adolescent, and he had a, sex a history of sexual deviance. 
He came to America with his wife in 1904, and as a visiting minister to several different communities across multiple states, he had portrayed odd behavior. Peeping into windows, sending obscene material in the mail, and even spent some time in a mental hospital. In 1917, he was indicted on the murders and even confessed, stating that he heard God whisper, quote, Suffer the children to come unto me in his ear. Now, he recanted this confession, and due to his mental illness, he was actually set free after a jury was hung on whether he should be convicted or not. Now, although the case was quite strong against him, there was even the fact that he sent bloody clothing to be laundered in a nearby city. He was released. Henry Lee Moore, our final suspect, no relation to the murdered family, by the way, he actually murdered his mother and grandmother. This was a few years after the Villisa Villisca murders, but there were so many similarities that he popped up on the investigator's radar. Now, in the murder of his, his own family, he had a motive. He wanted to get the deeds to their home, but no real evidence or motive really linked him to the Villisca murders, so the case against him was dismissed. Now, as morbid as it sounds, I would actually like to visit the Villisca home. Um, it's actually now a museum with all of its original furniture, including the beds in which the Moore family and the Stillinger girls were murdered in. Hauntings have been reported, uh, such as disembodied giggles, screams, unexplained movements, and a strange fog that actually rolls in with the train that coincides with the time of the murders, and it moves from room to room. Strange behavior from guests actually indicate that there's a possible chance that they might have been possessed. One of the owners actually won't speak of her experiences, but she states that there's definitely something in the home. She doesn't know what it is, but it's there, and things have happened that aren't necessarily calming. She doesn't know if it's the family or the murderer or a mixture of both, but she definitely, definitely doesn't like talking about it. Now, over a hundred years later, we're still no closer to knowing who could have committed the murders. We have very little evidence. We have strong suspects, but no real answers. Now, I'm willing to bet that the murderer was Lynn Kelly, the sexual deviant who was on the train three hours before they even found the bodies or knew that the family had been murdered, um, telling people that there were eight people dead in Villisca. The one who confessed to it, but then ended up getting off because he had mental illness. I mean, 
how else, if you didn't commit the crime, how else would you know about it three to three and a half hours prior to the crime? But, um, yeah, so tell me your thoughts, though, because I'd love to hear if there's um, any other theories or if you live in the area, if you know any more about the crime and anything that's actually come to light. But, um, yeah, tell me your thoughts. Shoot me a message through the podcast page here on Anchor or Spotify. You can also send me an email. Or feel free to send me a message on Facebook and Insta and or Instagram at creepycases.spookyspaces. And until next crime. Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces with Cassiopeia is a Pizza and Pigtails production with research, writing, and editing done by yours truly, Cassie O'Pea. You can find new episodes every Friday with bonus episodes coming out every other Tuesday. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at creepycases.spookyspaces. If you'd like to help support this podcast, you can subscribe directly through the anchor.fm page, which is creepycases-spooky-spaces, or you can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash creepycases-spooky-spaces.